Have you checked out our YouTube channel yet? That's where we upload video reviews of the latest TV shows and movies, stream gaming content on occasion, and recently, we've started doing in-depth video essay analysis. We have a goal to reach 1,000 subscribers by the end of the year, and we need your help to get there. We'd like to celebrate by doing something special for all of our subscribers if we hit this goal. And we'll rely on you to help decide what we end up doing. To find us, simply search at the Borough Media on YouTube. Make sure to not only subscribe if you like the content, but to give the video a like and ring the bell to make sure you receive notifications when we upload or go live. TBR Media is your movie refuge. everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Into the Borough podcast here on TBR Media's network. My name is Jared, your host for the day, and we have got a great episode for you. Later in the show, we are going to be discussing Tom Cruise apparently trying to lobby the AMPTP over AI and ask SAG-AFTRA to consider permitting continued publicity efforts amidst strike. And there's a very good reason that Tom Cruise is lobbying to do that, uh, as we have a bunch of release date changes and some potential big release date changes later this year. Amidst all the chaos, we have a bunch of different subscription services actually making it more expensive to consume their content. We'll break that down later in the episode. And then we're going to get into the box office projection and recap, of course, as well as long-range tracking for the, I guess, not-so-anticipated Blue Beetle. And then later in the episode, we are going to be talking about the weekend's biggest news story and reviewing Barbenheimer, the worldwide phenomenon that is occurring right now with the double feature of Barbie and Oppenheimer. So we're going to talk about that later on in the episode. At a time when Hollywood fears that the quarter three and quarter four 2023 release schedule will indeed fall apart due to the dual SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes, the motion picture industry is reaping one of the biggest domestic box office weekends on record. That's with Warner Brothers Barbie and Universal's Oppenheimer lighting up an estimated $308 million over the three-day weekend. That's the biggest weekend post-pandemic, easily burying the weekend when Spider-Man No Way Home opened, and all picks totaled $281 million. Per Comscore, this weekend will be the fourth biggest of all time, after Avengers Endgame Frame, Avengers Infinity Wars Weekend, and the weekend when Star Wars The Force Awakens debuted. Barbie has a lot of bragging rights beyond owning a dream house and a sports car. Warner still says $150 million three-day for America's Blonde, but industry calculations believe it's well more than $161 million. Any way you cut it, it's the biggest opening weekend of 2023 to date after an opening day. Also, the best year to date of $70.5 million. Oppenheimer, on the other hand, is eyeing a 77 million three-day after a 33 million opening day. 
just mind-blowing that a three-hour adult drama could emulate what's akin to a superhero movie in its first installment. Oppenheimer is Christopher Nolan's third best career opening at the U.S. and Canadian box office. It's also the best opening for an R-rated movie year-to-date. One distribution analyst points out that never before in the history of the box office has a weekend seen one movie open to $100 million plus and a second to $50 million. Per Warner Brothers, Barbie had the largest pre-sales in the studio's history, and the pick is repping record openings for filmmaker Greta Gerwig, Margot Robbie, and Ryan Gosling. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 in its three-day second weekend totaled $21 million, which is a 62% drop from the last week. The Sound of Freedom came in at number four over the three-day weekend with $20 million, and then Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny came in at $7 million for the three-day weekend in its fourth consecutive week. So overall, it's safe to say that Barbenheimer was indeed a success. And that concludes your box office update. And then there's a lot of news this week, but we're going to narrow it down to basically price increases on your streaming services, as well as the release calendar in 2023 being in serious jeopardy. So let's kick off this conversation talking about Tom Cruise and how he lobbied the AMPTP over AI and asked the SAG-AFTRA union to consider permitting continued publicity efforts amidst the strike. Ahead of the recent breakdown of contract negotiations between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP, Tom Cruise spoke with reps for both parties about issues like AI and project promotion, as well as some specifically concerning stunt professionals, Deadline has confirmed. During one bargaining session call last month, Cruise implored the AMPTP to recognize the gravity of SAG-AFTRA's ask as far as the guardrails around generative AI. Shown similar support by Cruise were Actors Guild proposals on behalf of stunt coordinators and performers, though specifics as to those asks haven't been shared by the Guild yet. Cruz also encouraged SAG-AFTRA to consider allowing further member promotion of studio projects, even amidst the strike. A source close to the actors notes that the discussion wasn't specifically concerning his latest blockbuster spy pick, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which had already wrapped its PR campaign. It was instead an acknowledgement of the power actor PR has in influencing box office results, which are of course crucial for theaters post-pandemic and for the professional of acting in turn. News of Cruz's lobbying efforts with the AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA was first reported by The Hollywood Reporter. Now, I bring this up as a point of contention for a lot of people who are going to take issue with the fact that Tom Cruise was asking for a waiver of promotion, essentially, meaning that the actors who were currently Um, you know, gearing up for a big movie release, were able to promote their films to get people to go see them at the movie theaters um, to kind of help that recovery process of theaters post-pandemic. And let me just say, I think it's crucial for actors to be able to promote their films in order to give the theaters a little bit of a cushion, maybe. Um, You know, actors doing these roundups and doing the Um, you know, stumps for their movies, all of the interviews, all of the red carpets, all of that does have an impact on the overall box office haul 
for these films. And Cruz is a big proponent of the theater industry, as am I. And in no way, by him asking for the waiver promotion, um, does that mean that Cruz is not you know, not receptive to the SAG-AFTRA and the WGA concerns that they have about the AMPTP and the studio's messaging and their insistence on uh, squeezing every penny out of them. I think there's nuance in that conversation. Uh, As someone who has worked in theaters for many, many years and managed many different movie theaters at different companies, I can tell you that one of the most devastating things to happen uh, was COVID. And not a lot of us thought that the theater industry, specifically the, you know, the theater companies and the individual theater locations, especially the mom and pop uh, theater locations, the independent owners of movie theaters, were going to come out of COVID unscathed. And that was a huge concern. And even in 2021 and 2022, theaters were still only operating at 50 or 60% of what it was pre-pandemic. Additionally, Warner Brothers is assessing potential new dates for the movie musical The Color Purple and also Aquaman The Lost Kingdom. And the main reason for these movies being potentially shuffled around is that they would benefit greatly from the participation of its all-star cast. Um, For Dune 2, that includes Austin Butler, Florence Pugh, Javier Bardem, and Josh Brolin alongside Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya. The first Aquaman was a billion-dollar film at the box office. Um, It raked in a lot of money. People were very receptive to it. I didn't like it as much as everyone else did at the time. I think that was 2018, maybe, um, or 2019 when Aquaman, the first one, came out. Um, A lot of people liked that movie. Uh, Jason Momoa has some draw. Obviously, he's getting a lot of praise for his work on the latest Fast and Furious film. And I think that, you know, even though that it was a billion-dollar franchise film um, that came out of the DCEU, I think that not having your actors be able to promote or stump for these films will have some type of uh, box office indication. Nonetheless, that there has been diminishing returns for the DCU franchise um, as we finish out the Zack Snyderverse of everything and really wrap into James Gunn and Peter Safran's vision for the DCU moving forward. But there has been arguments from multiple industry insiders suggesting that it may be just a good idea from a PR standpoint to go ahead and go full steam ahead with Aquaman 2's release date. Um, Because if you push that any further, you're going into territory where Superman Legacy won't be too far outside of the release window from Aquaman 2. And that could potentially lead to a situation where um, the general movie audience still has this perception of the, you know, Zack Snyderverse. And, you know, that could potentially hurt Superman Legacy if it really is a good movie. But then the color purple, you know, which was supposed to release on the 25th of December, um, one industry player noted it would hinge on a robust awards campaign. And when you don't have any of your stars being able to um, go out there, stump campaign for Oscar eligibility, uh, it's not likely if you were to release that, that it would get much of a push in terms of the awards, you know, ceremonies or campaigns. um, And it would kind of fizzle out. 
Disney is also considering the Marvels on November 10th and Lionsgate's franchise reboot The Hunger Games, uh, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, on November 17th. But it's important to note that Disney has not publicly commented that they are planning on shuffling any of their release dates um, you know, around, but it's just important to note that those are two of the biggest films from Disney left this year. And another potential awards uh, film that we need to probably talk about is Napoleon, which is directed by Ridley Scott, starring Joaquin Phoenix, which is supposed to come out on November 22nd. Uh, that is another film in a situation where it needs to have a robust awards campaign. It's been an early conversation already this year as to what it could potentially do. Could it get a Best Director nom? Could it get a Best uh, you know, Screenplay nom? Um, those are conversations that are being had about that film and certainly pushing that back or you know, keeping it in theaters and um, trying to do <laughs> a awards campaign for something that you don't have any promotion for is difficult. And all of that is to basically... Uh, embolden Tom Cruise's point about promotional work uh, for these films that are releasing at the box office. Uh, it's a super interesting, nuanced discussion. Um, I support the writers. I support the actors. Uh, I have stopped posting featurettes and uh, other content like that on our main channels. Obviously, we've still pushed ahead with doing reviews, um, but you know, I'm not going to be promoting going to spend your money on these films. I'm just doing reviews. I'm simply talking about the work that's already completed. First of all, let me get one thing out of the way. Fuck the studios. If everything that we've been hearing is true, then they are not acting in good faith and they do not care about people starving. And that's not okay. But at the same time, the theater industry is the victim here. Um, and so are the actors and writers. They're they're all pulled together because this hurts everyone. And keep in mind that it is hurting the studios financially. You know, a lot of these projects are costing the studios hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Um, and I forget the number that was floated around, but it is certain that they are losing a substantial amount of money each week that no work is being done. Netflix uh, removed the basic ad-free plan in the U.S. and the U.K. The company had previously removed that tier in Canada, but now the $10 a month per plan in the U.S. and the U.K. is gone. Now there are three options for its new subscribers. The $6.99 standard with ads tier, the $15.49 standard plan, and the $19.99 premium plan. It's important to note, though, that the $10 plan being removed is only going to be at this point for new and returning subscribers. If you currently have the basic plan, you can keep that plan, and it's grandfathered to some extent. Effective August 17th for existing users on their next billing cycle and immediately for new customers, the price of Peacock Premium with ads will increase to $1 uh, to $5.99 per month. And Peacock Premium Plus, which is mostly commercial-free, will rise by $2 to $11.99 per month. According to the media company, by increasing the price of Peacock, it will be able to invest its content into more and more original IP and the user experience while remaining competitive in the marketplace. 
Obviously, Peacock isn't the most expensive streamer out there, but it does lack a lot of content, a lot of new and engaging content. And their argument is that by doing this, that they can make more of that. And for those of you who think that this has nothing to do with the strikes currently happening, it has everything to do with the strikes currently happening. I think in this case, they're using it to its advantage. Um, And by that, I mean the streamers are using the strikes to their advantage by basically removing tiers and upping the price of their plans. Oh, you know, there's no work being done, so we're just going to raise the price of your plan, and we're, you know, going to have it under the guise that this is for the best and that, you know, we're hurting right now, no work's being done, blah, 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 all of that. They are certainly using it to their advantage. Um, But, you know, if some type of deal is struck on residuals for, like, Apple and Netflix and all of the big uh, streaming services, obviously that's going to impact the pricing plan. So I would expect to see much more of this. And in the same vein, I had an email on Friday telling me that my YouTube premium now costs an extra $2 a month. So ad-free YouTube viewing now costs $13.99 a month, while the price of YouTube music is increasing to $1 to $10.99. It's a $2 increase compared to what it used to cost, which was $11.99 a month. Um, that's according to Google's sign-up page for the service. Like I said, I got an email about it. Uh, this has quietly been updated to reflect the new pricing and was first spotted by 9to5Google. Alongside the monthly price increase, the cost of annual subscription to YouTube Premium is increasing by $20 to 139 YouTube spokesperson Jessica Gibby said that, quote, we're updating the price for YouTube Premium and YouTube Music Premium subscribers in the U.S. to continue delivering great service and features. So obviously, premium members enjoy ad-free YouTube with background and offline play and uninterrupted access to over 100 million songs with the YouTube Music app. I expect to see a range of pricing increases as the AMPTP and the studios uh, come to the negotiating table in the coming months with the WGA and the SAG members. I expect to see more and more of this. And unfortunately, at this point, it's like paying for an additional uh, cable package uh, with all the different options. Now, there is a little bit more consumer-friendly aspects of this, of you know diversifying the streaming library, and that is that users can choose whether or not they want to subscribe to a lot of these services. So they're not bundled in a way um, that really makes it feel like it's cable. Uh, you you certainly feel like you have more of a choice on the type of content you're consuming. However, um, you know, packages, cable packages from streaming services exist. Obviously, Hulu has their, you know, live TV program, and so does YouTube. But nonetheless, it sucks. It's like a dollar here, a dollar there, and eventually it adds up to like $10 more a month, you know, especially when more and more of these companies start to do this right now. For me, it's only costing me five extra dollars a month. I'm not too worried about it. It's fine, whatever. But, um, you know, in the future, when <laughs> like Amazon and when uh, Apple decide to do the same, then we're going to be in a world of hurt here. Lastly, let's break down the box office long-range forecast for Blue Beetle. Its opening weekend range is 12 to 17 million, and the domestic total range between 27 and 55 million. That is ouchy. <laughs> that is not good. Um, 
unfortunately, you know, when you don't have people stumping for this either, and you don't have those promotional events that we were talking about earlier on in the show, it's going to have an impact. Um, this is notable because the DC has branded into the DCU and Gunn specifically has confirmed that Blue Beetle is a part of the new DCU. So this isn't a good strategy then when you have a movie that, first of all, was made initially for streaming and then was shuffled to a theatrical window. Um, And, you know, it got a lot of good buzz behind the scenes from the industry insiders saying that it was obviously much better than they anticipated it to be. It was theatrical worthy. It didn't need to be shuffled to, you know, max. And so I think that it sucks for the cast that this is the case. Um, Unfortunately, this film comes out wide on August 18th. So we have less than a month. And do you think that the (laughs) union strikes that SAG and the WGA are going to come to the AMPTP and negotiate a deal before then? I don't think it's likely. And uh, unfortunately, that's going to mean that Blue Beetle will take sort of a hit at the box office, which... Again, you know, I just, I feel for everyone who worked on that movie. I feel for them, not the studio, but I feel for the creatives behind the scenes and in front of the camera that worked so hard on this movie. And it's going to be one of the biggest disappointments of the year. I know at this point, you've heard a lot about our website, theboroughmedia.com, but I wanted to share some of the content you can expect from us in case you missed it. On our site, you'll find podcasts, movie reviews, opinion articles, and more content covering all types of cinema. If you're looking for a review on your latest project, we've got you covered. Simply search theboroughmedia.com in your website browser and you'll find us. As a company residing in Nebraska, we know how hard it can be to get your message out to the world and we want to help. Find our contact page on our website and fill out the form. You'll also find a list of submission guidelines on the page. Not every submission will be accepted, mainly due to time restrictions, but we welcome all types of motion pictures. So what are you waiting for? Head over to the site now and check it out. TVR Media is your movie refuge. Now I'm going to dive into a quick review for Barbenheimer, the worldwide phenomenon. And obviously, as we talked about earlier on in the episode, the box office for these two movies has been astronomically successful, Um, especially given the current strikes. Obviously, they both had their promotional events before the uh, SAG union was officially on strike. And so that certainly helped their promotional uh, aspect of marketing. Um, And I think it played into the social media campaigns as well, because both of those films kind of took the Barbenheimer, the, because both of those films kind of took the Barbenheimer concept and ran with it. It was, uh, you know, created on social media. It certainly was a social media invention. And uh, I think it worked for the two films in their favor um, to have over what, 200,000 moviegoers according to the National Association of Theater Owners, or NATO, who said that 200,000 moviegoers were already booked for a double feature of Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day. 
multiple celebrities have been asked, you know, which one they would rather see. And a lot of them were giving answers of going to see both. They said, no, we're, we're going to go see Barbenheimer. We're not going to pick one over the other. So then let's talk about these films. Um, let me start off with Barbie, because we are going to be doing a full Barbenheimer spoiler review later on in this week. You can probably find that on Friday. Uh, is usually when we do our close-up episodes. So if you are unfamiliar with our exclusive show, Close Up, all of the episode library currently is over on Buy Me a Coffee. And unfortunately, when Anchor took down our podcast, one of the things that we did lose was all of our close-up episodes on the podcast. So um, if you subscribe to the podcast feed over on Buzzsprout's site, and the link for that will be in the show notes of the um, spoiler episode when we drop that on Friday. Uh, unfortunately, the only uh, two that you're going to have up there are um, the last two that we did, so the one before and then Barbenheimer. Uh, but if you go over to Buy Me a Coffee and you subscribe to our uh, $5 a month tier, you're going to get a whole library of close-up spoiler discussions, and so I highly encourage you to do that. But for right now, we're going to keep this non-spoilers for Barbenheimer, uh, starting with Barbie. Greta Gerwig is one of my favorite directors currently working. Uh, I loved Lady Bird. Uh, Little Women was one of my favorite movies of that year. And I think in recent memory, the only other film that I've given a complete five-star rating to other than Little Women in uh, the recent years has been Dune. So... Obviously, I, I'm excited for this just from a directorial perspective. Um, Greta Gerwig did a fantastic job directing Barbie. I think that what helped her was the magnetic performances from both Margot Robbie and also Ryan Gosling. If you look at the consensus on social media, a lot of the people are talking about how great Ryan Gosling was. And while he was really, really good, I do feel like Margot Robbie has kind of taken a backseat to the discussion here um, because her work in this movie is nothing short of exceptional, and it's what we've come to expect from Margot Robbie. I think your supporting cast is rounded out pretty well um, by the likes of you know Michael Sarah and Simu Liu and Issa Rae and America Ferreira, and I think all of those people put in really good work. They all have individual moments to shine which helps your overall storytelling perspective when you're able to have a bunch of different characters, whether or not they're supporting or leads, uh, all come together and culminate a fantastic entertaining experience, and that's what happened here. I will just say, I had a problem with the third act of Barbie. Um, the use of Will Ferrell in the movie specifically uh, rubbed me uh, the wrong way. I, I didn't feel like it was the right choice. And ultimately, there are a few different plot lines that are established very, very effectively early on in the film. There's one scene in particular where I was almost crying. Um, and that's kind of the pull from that indie style that Greta Gerwig has. Um, you'll know what scene I'm talking about. It happens, you know, in the in the first half of the movie. It's a scene with uh, Margot Robbie, and I think it's beautiful. I think it's gorgeous. Um, and unfortunately, from that point on, it just kind of lost me in the second act. I was, or rather, you know, part of the second act and then the third act. I was on board for everything that they were doing in terms of costume design, set design, and the tone that they had. They had a really unique tone where they were effectively, you know, breaking the fourth wall. And I love when movies are able to take that concept, not overuse it, 
but use it effectively. And I think they did. Helen Mirren narrating was great. It was a great touch to it. And uh, it had some really unique stylistic aspects of the sequences that they were doing. You know, the dance numbers, especially at the end, were magnetic. And all of it worked really well in favor of having a good time. Our theater was dying of laughter throughout the whole movie. So it wasn't something that was unique to specific scenes. You know how in when you go to see some comedies and some summer blockbusters that there's really only one or two scenes that really capture an audience um, to where everyone in the theater is laughing. There was constant laughter here. And it was really nice. And our theater was packed. It was really nice to be in a place where everyone was enjoying what was being presented to us on screen. However, you take a couple of those early plot points and you set them up and you go absolutely nowhere with them. And in some cases, you resolve them just as fast as they came about. So what that leads to is a little bit of uh, misfooting in terms of where the story should have gone in the latter half of the film. Nonetheless, I think it is totally valid and totally worthwhile to go see. Oppenheimer, on the other hand, was completely captivating, but a little cold. Um, and, you know, that's often a criticism that Christopher Nolan has gotten for his movies that feel distant, they feel cold, um, and it doesn't always work for a whole lot of people. I think it certainly didn't work in Tenet as well as it does here. I think there is a coldness to Robert Oppenheimer, and there's a coldness to that character and to the, I, I would say, the time period. It, it's a very existential, very looming uh, threat that is, you know, the the rise of communism in that time period and the rise of nuclear war in that time. And so I feel like injecting that coldness and that kind of longing and despair into a movie like Oppenheimer works better for Christopher Nolan than it does in Tenet or in any of his other films like Dunkirk. Um, Dunkirk kind of had the same kind of vibe to it where a lot of the characters, you know, weren't really necessarily people that you would root for in everyday life. They didn't have anything really special about them. But it was more about how that whole entire period of time is percepted. This movie moves at a breakneck pace. It is not one that you can really sit in on and uh, try and and work through in your mind all the time. I, I definitely need a second screening because... There are a lot of characters. There are a lot of names thrown around. Um, you know, there's a lot going on here. You have the rise of McCarthyism and the Red Scare. Meanwhile, you have, you know, the war at hand in, in World War II and what Germany and Japan are doing. And then you also have what's going on internally in Robert Oppenheimer's life. And balancing all three of those things, of course, you're going to run into issues. Um, it still gives a lot of time to kind of develop who Oppenheimer was um, as a uh, studying young man. And, you know, when he's studying, you get introduced to all of these characters at the schools, and it's pulling on real facts from his life. You know, the, the cyanide apple, for instance, and, and his uh, work within the Communist Party in America. And I mentioned this about Barbie, but having a really strong supporting cast is super important to telling a cohesive story when you have so many different characters on screen. Where I felt like Barbie might have underutilized 
some of those characters, Oppenheimer uses everyone to their fullest extent, no matter how little time they get on screen. Benny Safdie is great, Florence Pugh, uh, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt. There are so many different people in this movie that get you know, just a couple of moments to shine and they take it and they run with it and they steal their respective scenes. Florence Pugh and Robert Downey Jr. in particular are forces of nature in Oppenheimer. They have such a magnetic energy to them that you can't help but watch them and watch their mannerisms and watch how they're portraying these characters while simultaneously um, working through the script in their head internally uh, and, and taking such care and thinking about what actions are to be made, how their dialect is presented. And it's, it's just a massive feat for any actor to do. But of course, when they get to do something like this, you know, it becomes fun for them. I remember Robert Downey Jr. talking about holding that analog IMAX camera on his lap for a particular sequence in the movie that has like five seconds of screen time. I kid you not, it's so small. It's such a small chunk of time. Um, But how fun that was for him to have that process of filming on black and white analog film uh, to bring it to life on IMAX. And that is what we go to movies for. I think that Robert Downey Jr., is going to get a Best Supporting Actor nomination at the Academy Awards. And I think that uh, Killian Murphy, who we haven't talked about, delivers an incredibly captivating and hearty performance that is both nuanced and also grounded. I think Killian Murphy specifically is almost a shoo-in at this point for a nomination as to where you know we have a lot of different movies coming out later on in the year. We haven't even gotten into the awards season yet. But Right at this point, Killian Murphy will get a Best Actor nomination for Oppenheimer. And the sequences surrounding the committee that you that you see in the trailers is really cool because that is analog black and white film. It's not digital. So even the sound, the dialogue sounds different and it sounds reminiscent of old school filmmaking. And it's something to be appreciated from a technical perspective. And then you have the musical composition from Ludwig Gordonson, who does incredible work on a lot of big films. Um, and even his work on something like The Mandalorian is prevalent. Um, it's good here. I really like the score, but what takes the cake is the sound design. The sound design is incredible. It really draws you into the film, makes you feel something. The whole sh- the whole entire theater was shaking at a couple of different scenes. The obvious Trinity test that you've seen in the trailers is enthralling from start to finish. And then we get this whole beautiful epilogue that didn't work for everyone. The epilogue is the you know last third of the film, and it really draws on for a long time. There's a lot to talk about there. There are some major plot revelations that come out during that particular sequence um, in time. And they had a lot to juggle with, especially coming off of the Trinity test and coming off of the conception of the atomic bomb as we know it. And so they had a lot to work with. And it's not going to work for everyone. You know, I think everyone kind of has the same notion that the Trinity test, the testing of the first bomb is what is the main draw for this movie. But I think that the final third of the film is more about the characters and the the repercussions of dropping 
such bombs as we did on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It doesn't dive in too much to, you know, the perception from the Japanese, but it does dive into Oppenheimer's feelings and his conflicts internally that he is struggling with in terms of, did I make the right decision? Did I make the wrong decision? Was this all for nothing? And you've seen it, you know, the, the, the trailers showing Einstein and Oppenheimer talking, all of it worked incredibly well. And it's, it's a string that is threaded throughout the entire film. And it has a very poignant kind of interpretation from the script to the viewer that I feel like it will leave a lot of people questioning the choices that are military and the choices that our entire hegemonic presence in the world has garnered. So that's all to say that Barbenheimer was a massive success, both critically and from a box office perspective. And I certainly had an amazing time watching both of them same night back to back. So obviously you have a lot to catch up on this week. Barbie and Oppenheimer are new releases in the theater. Then you have They Cloned Tyrone on Netflix, which released on Friday. Uh, If that sounds interesting to you, the film serves as Jewel Taylor's directorial debut and stars John Boyega, Jamie Foxx, David Alan Greer, and Kiefer Sutherland. Justified City Primeval released over on FX over the weekend. It's streaming on FX Weekly, and then also on Hulu. The first two episodes are available now. If you're a Justified fan, it is back. Timothy Oliphant is back, and uh, this is eight years after the original series concluded its run. You can look forward to Remnant 2 as far as video game releases this week. comes out on July 25th on PlayStation 5, Windows PC, and Xbox Series X. And that is going to conclude today's episode of the Into the Burrow podcast. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. We are about uh, 120 subscribers away from reaching YouTube partners. So if you haven't yet, uh, down in the show notes below, you can find the link to our YouTube channel. Please go subscribe. Ring the bell to make sure that you know and get notified when we upload or go live. And also make sure to subscribe to this feed on wherever you get your podcast from. All of the networks are available. We are on every major service and even the smaller ones. So I highly recommend you subscribe to whichever feed you prefer. Make sure to rate and review this show. Let us know how we did. Tell us what we can improve upon, some of the things that you would like to see on the podcast. We've had the same format for going on two years, maybe two and a half, three years now. And so if there's something different, something more unique that you would like to see out of this show, please let us know. And uh, with all that down and out of the way, thank you so much for listening. And I hope everyone has a great week. And wherever you are in the multiverse, take care. From 2018 until present, we have been firm supporters of Patreon, but we've noticed over the years that our supporters really don't utilize all the perks we have to offer for various tiers. So we wanted to make it easier to support our mission in cultivating a community of passionate media consumers and amplifying indie cinema. Starting today, we are excited to announce that you can do this by simply buying our team a coffee. The only exclusive item that will be made available to members is our podcast, Close Up. For just $5, the price of a cup of coffee, 
You can watch and listen to Ren and Jared talk about everything from life to the latest theatrical releases. Our membership options also get you producer credits on all of our videos and podcasts, access to our Discord server, and a merch discount of 15%. In addition, we've added wishlist items to the page to make it easier to help us upgrade critical equipment to produce quality content and commissions to react and review to a piece of media of your choosing. This could be films, trailers, songs, anything of the such. This is the first of many exciting changes coming at TBR Media. We hope you will follow along for the journey. TBR Media is your movie refuge.